0: Please uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at several chapters here in the book of Exodus, kind of looking at the end of Exodus 6 and then on and through uh, the middle part of Exodus chapter 10 and I was talking with, with Mike on Friday, and uh, there's some good news for everyone here. He, he reminded me, he goes, now remember, I was kind of talking about how things were kind of fitting together for Sunday, he goes, now you remember you, you allocated two weeks for this. I did not remember that, uh, but that's going to work out really well for all of us this morning, so we're going to kind of start on this uh, this morning, and then uh, we're going to try to uh, finish it up, Lord willing, uh, next week when we're together, and, and just looking here, at these these plagues, uh, signs that that God gives uh, the Egyptians and the people of Israel to help them uh, understand who he is and how they should respond rightly to him. And in Exodus 6, we had just seen God promising deliverance. We had talked about some characteristics of spiritual shepherding last time we were together. Then You have the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, we'll talk more about this in a little bit, but God connecting the story of Moses and Aaron to the the promise that he had made to the forefather Abraham. And then we come now to Exodus chapter 7. And if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, I'm going to read the whole chapter, but then have you stand at least for the first uh, 13 verses or so. Here's Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men And the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. You may be seated. I'll continue reading. Verse 14 of Exodus 7. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood." And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned to blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would ask this morning for you to help us understand your word. Lord, as we look at these these plagues, these these judgments, these signs and wonders you do here to the Egyptians Glorify your name. There are hard truths here, truths that that should compel us to worship you, and and yet sometimes in our our hearts that are hardened by sin, the deceitfulness of sin, our our commitment to sin, uh, truths that we're not able to comprehend. So we ask for your divine grace uh, so that we can behold you in your glory. Respond in worship, Lord. We pray that your your glory would be sufficient for whatever areas we're struggling with this morning. We pray for those who are uh, in a difficult relationship, uh, those who are uh, in a exciting time in the relationship, preparing for a new phase. We pray for those uh, who are. Uh, in, in need of just special counsel and are, are seeking godly counsel. We, we pray for uh, your glory to be manifest and to them is, as we think about your signs and wonders in Egypt. We pray for those who are uh, battling health problems, uh, big, small. Lord, we pray for them to uh, see your sufficiency and your power and your glory. We we pray uh, for, for those in our, our church who are struggling with their finances. We we ask for uh, you to provide for them and they again would see uh, your glory, the, the glory of the God who uh, owns and possesses all things. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. This past week, I was at a, a worship conference and just a, a great time thinking through the the worship ministry. I, I thought that Mike had, had wanted me to, to go and so I could prepare for my solo uh, that's still not happening. Mike has made abundantly clear that preaching is my my thing on Sunday morning. And uh, make sure my mic is off when I'm singing. Um, but the, the worship conference was really good. It, it was really really encouraging to me to, to understand more about what we're trying to accomplish on a Sunday morning as we approach God and, and worship Him corporately through, through singing and through the preaching of His Word The first night, there was a statement made, kind of that first session that I I think is is very true. The the statement was that that true worship begins with the Father seeking us. In other words, as we approach God in worship, worship doesn't begin with with us coming to God. Worship begins with, with God coming to us. Worship begins with us understanding that we are, receivers, first and foremost, not givers. First and foremost, when it comes to worship, we are are receivers, not givers. That, that's, I think, incredibly important for us to understand because it is so easy for us to be tempted to, to practice idolatry, to have a false conception about who God is and, and worship that false conception instead of God himself. And In fact, as we think about the first five books of the Bible that we're studying, the Pentateuch, they are very concerned that we rightly understand what idolatry is and what worship is. In Deuteronomy, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 4, you can turn there if you want, Deuteronomy chapter 4 I think has this this great statement about what idolatry is, and and all this is coming back to Exodus, I hope. But in Deuteronomy 4... Moses is warning the people, or God is warning the people through Moses about idolatry, about false worship, and he talks about his commands and, and his rules, and he says, you're to, to go in the land, and you're to live in accordance with these, these rules and, and instructions that I've given you. He says, uh, you're, you're to hold fast to the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 4, four I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of these the, the peoples, who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, surely this, this great nation is a wise and understanding people, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. So here's what he's saying. He's saying you're going to go into this land and you're going to worship me by living in obedience to me. And then, as he's talking about worship, he warns them against idolatry. He talks about how God gave these instructions, doesn't want their... Their eyes to stray from them. He he reminds them of, of how this took place. And then he says in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 4, Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of... And he goes on. Don't make an idol is what he's saying. Don't worship nature, he says, beginning in verse 19. Take care, he says in verse 23, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Okay, so here's what he's saying in Deuteronomy 4. Watch yourselves... Remember, God didn't have a form when he, when he spoke to you. God is spirit. And so don't take some some thing from nature and kind of fashion it and, and worship that. And he's saying if, if you do that, you're practicing idolatry. And when you confuse the person of God and practice idolatry concerning the person of God... You're not going to be able to fulfill the purpose of God. You're going to practice idolatry when it comes to the purpose of God as well. in worship. You're not going to walk in obedience to him. So... Obey God and his instructions and his commandments as you think about who he is. Don't, don't create a, a false god for yourself. And as you and I know all too well, it is easy for you and I as well to practice idolatry, to fashion some, some false sense of who God is in his person and then not be able to fulfill his purpose. We have a false conception of the person of God and so we don't fulfill his purpose. So, for instance, we might have a wrong conception of the person of God when it comes to his, his mercy or a wrong perception of God when it comes to the idea of his judgment or a wrong perception of God when it comes to his love. And so we, we wrongly understand the person of God and we're not able to fulfill his purpose. Just for example, think about the church. If we don't rightly understand the person of God who created the church, and Jesus who's its foundation, then we're not going to understand God's purpose for the church. Whenever my family was uh, in, moved to the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we were, we were looking for a church, and there was one church that we'd visited for some months, and my parents were enjoying this church. And whenever my parents spoke of the church, they talked about its good preaching or the fellowship, and if someone had asked me about the church, I would have said, well, I really like it because uh, at, at youth group we play dart gun war, okay? And that seems like a pretty good church to me. I, I think we should stay, all right? That was my evaluation of the... I, now. What's, what's happening there? I, don't, I, don't, I didn't understand God, right, and his purpose for the church, and, and so I don't understand what a church should be and, and what God wants it to be, and so everything's all confused there. I'm, I'm practicing idolatry. That's okay for a sixth or seventh grader, not all that great for someone in their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s and so forth, right? As a mature believer, a God centered view of of him and his purpose for the church understands Colossians one that Christ is the head of the body, He's He's the beginning, the, the firstborn from the dead, and everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in heaven or on earth making peace by the blood of his cross. So how do we understand his purpose? Just, I'm giving an example here. How do we understand his purpose for the church? Well, we understand his person. As we understand the person of Jesus Christ, we understand the purpose of the church, and we're able to worship him rightly and walk in obedience. Now, I say all this because I believe one of the weaknesses of the church today is, is our commitment to idolatry instead of worship. We are committed to an idolatrous conception of God as opposed to the true God. And our commitment to an idolatrous conception of God, the God we've fashioned for ourselves, it causes us to not worship him rightly, to not fulfill his purpose for us. If there are no problems that you have when contemplating the majesty of God there's a high likelihood you've created a false God. <laughs> In other words, if if you've fashioned a God that you can perfectly understand and, and, uh, and it makes complete sense to you and, and there's no aspects of his nature or character that you have to, to ponder or think about, there's every possibility that you've just created this, this false God instead of coming to the God of Scripture and trying to understand what Scripture says about God. So we look at Scripture, we encounter a God that doesn't, act in the ways we might always expect. He's not a God who can just be neatly cut out and placed on a, on a, on a picture page. And in fact, this morning we look at, at two aspects of his, his character that are, that are true. This morning and next week and beyond, we're going to look at tr- two very true aspects of his character, but, but two things that are hard for us to understand that we need to, to wrestle with and, and deal with in a very deep way, if we're to worship him rightly. We're going to talk in the next two weeks about his judgment and his sovereignty. Both of these things, God's judgment and his sovereignty, are hard things for us to grasp, and yet they are essential aspects of his character. If we're going to worship him rightly, we need to understand them. As we look at this this passage, here's kind of the main thing that I want you to glean as we look at these stories of of god's judgment and his signs and wonders that he performs in egypt the, the two things that I want you to or the thing that I want you to see is this god 's judgment proclaims gospel truths that will fuel the worship of the nations and us. Let me, let me say that again. As we look at these signs, these nine, ten signs that occur in Exodus, these nine signs and then this, this tenth sign of the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, as we look at these, these signs, God's judgment, what we see is that God's judgment proclaims gospel truths. God's judgment here proclaims gospel truths, and these are gospel truths that are going to fuel the worship of nations and us. Why does God engage in these judgments? There are some Aspects of that that we are not going to be able to answer fully. But what we see clearly revealed in scripture is that these these judgments are actually means of God proclaiming truths that are essential to the gospel. And these gospel truths that are proclaimed through these judgments are going to be the the fuel of nations worship and ours. I believe that's a remarkable truth for us to ponder the difficult reality that God brings about judgment is something we must cling to if we're going to worship him rightly. In other words, I can't say, "Well, I'm going to worship this God," but the God that I worship is not a judging God. The God that I worship isn't a God that's involved in these these plagues in Egypt. I'm going to kind of cut and paste. That part is going to I'm going to set that over here, and the God that I'm going to focus in focus in on is not a God who would do things like like bring frogs on people or, or kill their first, or have their, their first, firstborn sons die. That's, that's not the God that I'm going to worship, so I'm going to kind of cut and paste that, stick it over here, and focus on some other aspects of God. If we engage in that, we're engaging in an idolatry. These truths that take place in these chapters are truths we must cling to if we're going to respond rightly to God and worship a true God. What we see, these judgments by God proclaim gospel truths that fuel the worship of nations. Now, go and open up your Bibles if you're not already, already there, please. And turn to Exodus chapter six. And in Exodus six, we just finished a few weeks ago in verse 13, and we begin in verse 14, and on the way through the end of the chapter, and what we see is that Moses is connecting his genealogy, his, his story of his ancestors, with the, the story of the patriarchs. In other words, he's tying himself and what's about to take place with the covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember that covenant in in Genesis 12 where the Lord says to Abram, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, this is Genesis 12, the, the, the beginning of the covenant with Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that, that, that's why I believe studies like what we're doing right now on Sunday morning are, are so important. The story of Moses and Aaron and their interaction with Pharaoh doesn't just occur by itself. Moses is making it very clear to us that this, this story of God working with, with him and the people of, of Israel is, is connected with God's promises to Abraham. And so we see this this genealogy of Moses and Aaron linking them back to the Abrahamic covenant, that they are descendants of of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And then we come to verse 26. It says, these are the Aaron and Moses. This is Exodus 6. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This This Aaron and this Moses, he wants us to know, this is who we're talking about. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, how will Pharaoh listen to me? Then we come to chapter 7. And in the first 13 verses of of chapter 7, before we start getting to the signs and wonders, the plagues, we see very clearly God laying out, before it happens, God laying out what's going to happen and why he's doing it. It's so important for us to understand what he's saying here. Lord responds to Moses, look, I've made you like God, Aaron's like your prophet, you, and this this is their responsibility, your responsibility is to speak. And then, look at what God says his responsibility is. First, he says, look, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. We'll talk more about that later. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, that's what he says he's going to do next. So first, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. This is God's responsibility. Moses' responsibility is to speak through Aaron. God says, I'm going to deal with Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to perform signs and wonders. These are the plagues of judgment. And, he says, I know, this is in advance, Pharaoh won't listen to you, I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So, what's God going to do? He's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He is going to perform signs and wonders and through those signs and wonders, that those are going to be the means by which he distinguishes his people from the Egyptians. And through those signs and wonders, he's going to, to bring out his people. And then verse 5. Verse 5 is very, very important of Exodus 7. He says, The Egyptians shall, shall know that I am the Lord When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. What is God's purpose here? God's purpose is not to destroy the Egyptians. God's purpose is to help fulfill, and we'll continue to talk about this as we go through this passage. We'll see it in other places as well. God's purpose is to fulfill what he's proclaimed through the Abrahamic covenant. This is part of God's means of blessing the people of the world through the descendants of Abraham. Even in his judgment. God is going to reveal gospel truths through these judgments. Now, there's three kind of cycles of judgment. There's there's nine plagues, nine signs and wonders before this, the last one, the, the death of the firstborn. And there's there's three sets of three. Three times three is nine. So there's this first set of three, a second set of three, and a, a third set of three. And in each of these cycles you see some of the same things. Each cycle begins with the mourning and Moses being told to go to Pharaoh, each cycle has um, kind of similar things happening in each one of the, uh, each one of the plagues, each one of the signs and wonders, and and each one reveals gospel truths. So here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. Let's do this. We're going to kind of focus on each cycle, and we're going to focus on three gospel truths that are revealed through God's Judgments here, and each of these gospel truths could be found in any one of these three cycles. But there's kind of maybe more a more dominant theme that comes through each cycle. We're going to kind of focus on the dominant theme of each cycle as we talk about these these judgments in sets of three. Here's the question again: How does God's judgment? You say, okay, Daniel. How does God's judgment reveal gospel truths to the Egyptians, to the nations, to us? You, that's a very audacious claim, Daniel. How can we say that? Well. Here's here's the three truths that God's judgment reveals, three gospel truths. Number 1, we'll look at the first cycle of judgments. God's judgment reveals humanity's sin. That's the first gospel truth that was revealed in look down at at verse 14, we have the first plague, the first sign and wonder that God performs. And in this this first cycle, we're going to see the blood, we're going to see the frogs, the gnats, that's the the first cycle. And by the end of the first cycle, there's a clear recognition that, that takes place that I think is important for us to understand. Now, how, how is humanity's sin revealed By judgment. You say, okay, God's judgment reveals humanity's sin. How is that? Two things I want you to see here. The first thing is this. Judgment reveals sin by showing that we have constructed a false reality in which we've exalted ourselves. Judgment is going to reveal sin by showing us that we have constructed a false reality for ourselves in in which we've exalted ourselves. And and that's what takes place here, right? As we look at God giving Moses these instructions to give Pharaoh, there's a very fundamental question. And the question is, does God, does this Yahweh God, have the authority to tell Pharaoh what to do, right? Right? I mean, Moses is not sure about his ability, but but as we read this narrative, I, I think we, as we read it, we just kind of have this assumption, well, of course God has the authority to tell Pharaoh to, to let his people go. He says in verse 2 to, of, of chapter 7, Speak all that I command you. Tell Pharaoh to, to let the people of Israel go. Verse 14 of... Exodus 7. Pharaoh's heart is hard and He refuses to let the people go. Now, does God have the authority to tell Pharaoh what to do? You and I, I said, well, of course. Uh, the Egyptians answered that question very differently. In the Egyptian mind, this, this Yahweh God, who, who was he? He did not have the authority to tell Pharaoh to do anything. He, he was the God of a bunch of slaves. Now, here's kind of the Egyptian worldview. In the Egyptian worldview, there were various entities that were responsible for, for various things within nature. And, and there, was this, there was supposed to be this harmonious relationship between all these different forces. Each part of the universe contributes to this, this well balanced system. And th- there was this word, Ma'at, that kind of described this, this force that kind of kept everything harmonious. And the Pharaoh, as the incarnate God, kind of this incarnate God here on earth, Pharaoh's job was to keep ma'at, was to keep everything operating in balance. And so, in the Egyptian mind, Moses and and Moses' God have no right to tell Pharaoh to do anything. And so God's judgment; these these first nine judgments are a direct attack on this Egyptian worldview. This Egyptian worldview that's been constructed that says Pharaoh is this incarnate god that has the ability to control the Nile. He has the ability to control the the um, you know how the, the crops and, and all these things that Pharaoh's in charge of. These judgments are a clear sign that this worldview that the Egyptians have constructed for themselves is false. God's judgment reveals that without question. And the second way that judgment reveals sin, judgment reveals our sin by showing that we refuse to repent of a false reality even when shown it's false. God's judgment reveals our sins in and, and, and that it shows that our hearts are so hardened that even when our worldview is shown to be false, we refuse to repent of it, right? Look what happens. Look what happens in this first plague, this first cycle of plagues. There's the blood, right? The, the blood in, in the Nile and and what happens pharaoh it should become very clear he has no ability to to stop this he can simulate it but he he can't stop it and and how how does he respond it says pharaoh's heart remained hardened in verse 22 pharaoh in verse 23 turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart he he continues in his rebellion against god and the same thing happens with these these other two plagues in this first cycle, there's the plague of the frogs. In verse fifteen of, of chapter eight, it says he, he hardened his heart, would not listen as the Lord had said. There's the gnats. In verse nineteen, it says, uh, in verse nineteen, I think that something very crucial happens. the The magicians begin to realize there's something different about about this about this this plague, and, and they recognize, it says in verse 19, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and, and he would not listen even to his own magicians, as the Lord had said. Judgment reveals our sin. As God brings about judgment, or reveals sin, as we realize this, this worldview that I have constructed for myself doesn't mesh with reality. And judgment reveals the depth of our sin, in that even as I am confronted with my own failure to construct a worldview that corresponds with reality, I refuse to repent of it. Judgment shows that. There's that powerful scene in the book of Revelation where where God's judgment begins to rain down and people hide themselves, trying to to hide themselves from the wrath of God, but, but refusing to repent. Refusing to repent. God's judgment is not designed to destroy humanity in its entirety. God's judgment is designed to reveal to humanity their, their lostness, their sin. To show that their worldview is, is incorrect. The worldview we've constructed for ourselves doesn't correspond with reality, right? Right? And we know that the Egyptians are not the only ones who've constructed for themselves a a false reality. You think about the worldview that we've constructed for ourselves in our culture. Our culture is an extremely materialistic culture. We believe that the material world is is all that there is. And we try to to fashion explanations for our existence and why we do the things we do apart from God. Search for anything. I think I told you about one of my favorite quotes from Stephen Barr in his book uh, Ancient Faith and Modern Physics. He's, he's talking about how different materialists have tried to explain this, this reality that it, it looks like our universe has been designed. And so what some theoretical physicists and other scientists have, have, have come up with and say, well, perhaps, yes, our universe looks like it was designed, but but that's only because there are an infinite number of universes. And, and because there's an infinite number of universes, we just happen to be in the universe that looks like it was designed. And Stephen Barr, I think, rightly says, he says, in order, in order to get rid of one unobservable God, they've created an infinite number of unobservable unobservable universes. There's a, uh, I don't know if you guys saw this this uh, news story this past week, but the Bank of America sent out a, an email to some of its investors through its Merrill Lynch branch or something like that. And most of the email update was kind of investment advice, things like that. But it had this this kind of bizarre section. I don't know if if any of you saw this. In which one of its analysts quoted theoretical physicists who speculate that there's a 20 to 50% chance that we are living in a a fake world right now. In other words, that we're just part of some sort of simulation, maybe like a computer simulation. And the idea is, well, uh, because... Because we're getting better and better at technology, eventually we're going to have uh, higher degrees of artificial intelligence. And, and because we know that's happening in the future, there's a high likelihood that someday we'll be able to simulate universes. And a, a simulated universe is much easier to create than a real universe. And so there's going to be more simulated universes than real universes. And so we're probably living in a matrix world right now. Okay. I don't know about you, but that seems like a really elaborate way to try to get rid of God, right? What does God's judgment reveal? God's judgment reveals that the worldview you've constructed for yourself is a farce. The Egyptians had constructed a worldview where they were no longer accountable to God because there's this ma'at and Pharaoh's in charge of it. We've constructed a worldview in which, oh, there's an infinite number of universes we can't see or we're probably just living in a, a matrix-type world and so we're not accountable to God. By the way, I'm very fearful about investing with someone who doesn't believe that I'm real. But I, I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't. I'm not giving any invest, investment in my advice this morning, by the way. But um, that would concern me. I, if you're going to invest with someone, I would ask the question: Do you think I'm real, and do you think my money is real? But <laughs> again, not advice. You know. But what happens in disaster? Disaster and pain. Strips away illusion. When you experience the pain of living in a fallen world, the idea that this is is fake is rather hard to swallow, right? Disaster tells us, look, we're responsible to God and we're blowing it. Here's some, some truths to think about for application. One, we just need to understand this. We need we need as we think about God's judgment, we need we need to acknowledge we want to construct worldviews that place us at the center. We need to understand that's our, that's our tendency, that's our temptation. And, and I do it in all areas of life. I want to be my own authority. I want uh, me to be the end of other people's relationships. I want me to be the end of other people's thoughts. I want to construct a worldview in which I'm at the center. And as we think about God's judgment, we need to acknowledge, okay, this is a sign that that's my tendency. Another truth for application is, is we need to be grateful to God for showing us the absurdity of rebellion. As, as we think about God's judgment, we need to say, God, thank you, for, thank you for in your grace not destroying us utterly as you could and revealing to us the absurdity of rebellion. Another application is, is this. Uh, we, are, we are truly culpable for our failure to worship God. In other words, we can't say, well, you, you know what, I'd worship God if I could, but he's sovereign and, and he hasn't let me. And so, no, that's, that's, not, that's not an acceptable excuse here. As we look at, as we look at this this story, we are going to struggle with this reality that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but it is also clear that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God doesn't say, "Well, Pharaoh, you know, it's not really your fault. I kind of set you up." That's that's never the suggestion of God's word. Pharaoh is responsible for his own failure to worship God. Another thing we must Acknowledges that sin is punished. It's a reality. There's judgment. We're responsible to God. At the same time, just kind of as a word of caution here, I think we have to be very careful with, about saying bad things or examples of God's judgment. We, we don't know always what God is doing And Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, I think, are very good. It says, in Luke 13, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, and says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What about the eighteen? Jesus says, on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Now, what does this mean? It means when we see disaster, when we see the reality of living in a fallen world and God allowing the circumstances of a fallen world to, to take place, what do we do? We repent. We recognize that God's judgment or the reality if it's God's active judgment or God's passive judgment of just allowing us to live in this fallen world, all those aspects of of God's judgment reveal this truth. We're, we're sinful. We have a responsibility to repent before God. We don't have time to get fully into this the second one, but here's the second gospel truth that I want you to think about. The second gospel truth is this. God's judgment reveals God's, Sovereignty. God's judgment reveals God's sovereignty. What we're going to see as we look through this second cycle of God's judgments is that He is sovereign. He's in total and absolute control of what he chooses to do. He delivers who he desires and he punishes those who he desires. Israel is going to be distinguished from Egypt. In a very profound way, as we go through this second cycle next week. In fact, as we we think about this, kind of kind of look at the the text there. Before any of this begins, you go back to chapter seven, and, and we see that. God's sovereignty is revealed through his judgment as we, as we see God destroying the illusion of control. We, we talked about that already. God's sovereignty is revealed through his judgment as, as he's destroying this illusion that the Egyptians had that Pharaoh was in control. We're also going to see that God's sovereignty is revealed through his judgment as we see that he has authority over the human heart. And this is kind of the truth. I want you to, I'm just kind of kind of throw out this hand grenade and pull the pin and just let it sit there for a whole week and hope nothing goes off, okay? Uh, here's this reality. I want you to just kind of meditate upon this. And and, and what, what I'm going to suggest to you is the biblical evidence is, I was going to say inarguable. It's actually very arguable because people argue about this all the time. But, but the biblical evidence, I believe, tells us that God has sovereignty. He has control even over our heart. Before all this begins and, and Verse 3 of chapter 7, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardens the heart of Pharaoh in, in Exodus 9, even though we see also Pharaoh hardening his heart. We see it uh, in other passages here later after the plagues. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go, Exodus ten We're going to see this in, in, uh, in other passages of scriptures, other, referring to other people. It says, for example... In Deuteronomy two, talks about the king of Heshbon. Says he wouldn't let us pass by, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his his heart obstinate. What, what does this mean? What does this mean? What it means is, is that there's a tension in Scripture. God's judgment God's judgment reveals our sinfulness. But it also reveals that, that he is completely sovereign and that he has the ability to save. And I don't want to get too much into what we're going to be talking about next week, but as, as you come to the end of the story of the Israelites in Egypt, you have the people of Israel, the people of Egypt, looking at the people of Israel and saying, This is God. And as you come later into to Exodus Chapter 18, you have Moses' father-in-law who is not of the people of Israel. He, as he hears what God has done and his sovereignty, it says in verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, this is Jethro, Moses' non-Israelite father. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, the Egyptians dealt arrogantly with the people. God was magnified. God's judgment reveals gospel truths. God's judgment reveals our sinfulness, it reveals his sovereignty, and as we're going to see next week, it reveals his salvation. The judgment of God is a terrible thing, and it is also a gracious thing, by which God reveals to you and to me his greatness, and how the only path of salvation Deliverance from our sin is through faith in him, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Great gospel truths are revealed through judgment, and these gospel truths are going to fuel the worship of nations and us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gospel revealed through judgment. We, we pray next week as we, we struggle with this idea of your sovereignty and all of this, that we, we recognize how it, how it glorifies your name and exalts you. We pray that we would respond not with hearts of arrogance, not with hearts of of rebellion, but with hearts of faith, trusting your son Jesus alone for our salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen.